armies to concentrate there quickly after the opening clashes. Although it is the home of Gettysburg College and of a Lutheran theological seminary, the main business of Gettysburg today is tourism. Most of those nearly two million visitors to the battlefield spend money in town. Many tourist services flourish, from restaurants and motels to shops selling every kind of trinket and relic, from ghost tours and a wax museum to bookstores and picture galleries. Some of these businesses are cheek by jowl with the National Military Park, which includes more than 4,000 acres on which most of the fighting took place during those first three days of July 1863. No tourists came to Gettysburg before that time. It was then a market town for a large and prosperous agricultural hinterland. The area was a famous fruit-growing region. No fewer than 38 orchards existed on what became the battlefield. All of them are gone today except part of the famous peach orchard, plus two ornamental fruit orchards. The Park Service has long-term plans to plant replica orchards where they existed in 1863, but don't hold your breath waiting for it to happen. I have lost count of the number of times I have been to Gettysburg. I have toured the battlefield by car, by bus, on a bicycle, and on foot. Over the past 20 years I have taken Princeton students, alumni, friends, and miscellaneous groups on at least two dozen tours of the battlefield. I have made so many visits to the college and town, as well as the battlefield, that Gettysburg has become almost a second home. I honestly believe that if I were blindfolded and winched down from a helicopter to any spot on the battlefield on a moonlit night, I could remove the blindfold and identify my surroundings within minutes. I would not have known where I was on many parts of the battlefield in 1863, however, not only did all those orchards exist then, but there are also some 600 acres of woods today that were cleared then, and about 150 acres of cleared land today that were wooded in 1863. Another 600 acres of woods that existed in the same places then as now were woodlots in 1863, where farmers harvested dead trees and some live ones for fuel and fencing. They also allowed livestock to graze in some of these woodlots, which kept them free from undergrowth. Many of the woodlots were therefore open and park-like in 1863, enabling troops to move through and fight in them, where saplings and undergrowth today would make such activities impossible. The Park Service plans to remove 150 acres of woods that did not exist in 1863, to reforest 50 acres plus the orchards where woods did exist in 1863, and to cull some trees from the 600 acres of woodlots. When they have done so, it will be easier to see and understand the lines of sight, approach, and combat that existed in 1863. Until, and even after, this cutting and culling happens, however, the first thing a tour guide must tell listeners is to imagine a cleared field, or a park-like woodlot, where there are thick woods today. Or, imagine an orchard or a grove, where there are none today. Such a feat of imagination is not always easy. What brought 165,000 soldiers, 75,000 Confederate, 90,000 Union, to Gettysburg during the first three days of July 1863? Why did they lock themselves in such a death grip across these once bucolic fields until 11,000 of them were killed and mortally wounded, another 29,000 were wounded and survived, and about 10,000 were missing? mostly captured. What was accomplished by all of this carnage? Join me for a walk on this hallowed ground, where we will try to answer these questions. Day 1 
July 1st, 1863. We'll begin our tour three miles northwest of the Gettysburg Town Square at the historic Chambersburg Pike. Here on the morning of July 1st were posted the outlying pickets of the 8th Illinois Cavalry. As the sun burned away the mist, they spotted a column of Confederate infantry marching toward them. At 7.30 a.m., Lieutenant Marcellus Jones rested a breech-loading Sharps carbine on a fence rail and fired at the enemy. It was the first shot in the largest battle ever fought in the Western Hemisphere. Why were these soldiers here, more than 100 miles north of the Rappahannock River in Virginia, where they had confronted each other until only three weeks earlier? What brought these two armies to Gettysburg? The preceding six months had been a low point for the Union cause. On December 13, 1862, the Army of the Potomac, commanded by Major General Ambrose E. Burnside, had attacked General Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia at Fredericksburg on the Rappahannock. There the Yankees had sustained a disastrous and humiliating defeat. Northern spirits plummeted. The people have borne, silently and grimly, imbecility, treachery, failure, privation, loss of friends editorialized the leading northern magazine, Harper's Weekly. But they cannot be expected to suffer that such massacres as this at Fredericksburg shall be repeated. When Lincoln heard the news of Fredericksburg, he said, If there is a worse place than hell, I am in it. Things would get worse for the North before they got better. At the end of April, a new commander of the Army of the Potomac, Major General Joseph Hooker, launched an offensive at the crossroads hostelry of Chancellorsville, a few miles west of Fredericksburg. After getting in the enemy's rear and gaining a tactical advantage, however, Hooker lost his nerve and yielded the initiative to Lee. The ensuing Battle of Chancellorsville, May 1st through 5th, 1863, marked Lee's most brilliant achievement. Facing greatly superior numbers, he divided his army three times in a series of flank and frontal attacks that bewildered Hooker. Although Lee's ablest subordinate, Lieutenant General Stonewall Jackson, was wounded by friendly fire on May 2nd, the Army of Northern Virginia went on to inflict another humiliating defeat on the enemy. Jackson's death from pneumonia, which set in after his wounding, on May 10th, tempered the joy in the South produced by Chancellorsville. Nevertheless, confidence abounded that one more Confederate victory in this theater would offset Union successes in Mississippi and win Confederate independence. Lee decided to carry the war into Pennsylvania in a bid to conquer a peace on northern soil. To the Confederate government in Richmond, Lee presented the dazzling prospect that an invasion of Pennsylvania would remove the enemy threat on the Rappahannock, take the armies out of war-ravaged Virginia, and enable the Confederates to supply themselves from the rich Pennsylvania countryside, and relieve the pressure on Confederate armies in the West by compelling Union forces there to send reinforcements to the East. Lee's plan might also strengthen northern peace Democrats, so-called copperheads, in their arguments for an armistice and peace negotiations, discredit Lincoln in his war policies, including the Emancipation Proclamation issued five months earlier, encourage European diplomatic recognition of the Confederacy, and perhaps even capture Harrisburg or Baltimore and hold the city hostage for a ceasefire and negotiations. Confederate President Jefferson Davis told Lee to go ahead. In the post-Chancellorsville aura of invincibility, anything seemed possible for the Army of Northern Virginia. There never were such men in an army before, wrote Lee in June 1863 as his troops started north. They will go anywhere and do anything if properly led. 
After Jackson's death, Lee had reorganized the Army from two corps, under Jackson and Lieutenant General James Longstreet, into three corps, of three divisions each, commanded by Longstreet, A.P. Hill, and Richard Ewell, who got most of Jackson's old corps. Major General Jeb Stuart commanded the Army's Cavalry Corps. During the second week of June, the Army of Northern Virginia moved north through the Shenandoah Valley toward the Potomac River, keeping the Blue Ridge Mountains between themselves and Union cavalry that probed the mountain gaps to track the enemy. The Northern cavalry gave a good account of itself for almost the first time in this theater, especially at the Battle of Brandy Station near Culpeper, Virginia, on June 9th. Some of the best fighting in these cavalry actions was done by a Union division under Brigadier General John Buford, a native of Kentucky whose cousin was a brigadier general in the Confederate Army. Jeb Stewart's Confederate horsemen had been surprised and roughly handled at Brandy Station. Stewart's ego may have been bruised by the criticism this affair provoked in the South. After Brandy Station, he was determined to dispel criticism and live up to his reputation by performing some new, bold, and dramatic deed. Two weeks later, an opportunity arose. After screening the Confederate infantry's advance northward by defending the Blue Ridge Passes from probing Union horsemen, Stewart got permission from Lee to move into Pennsylvania east of the Blue Ridge South Mountain Range, provided he always remained in contact with the infantry through couriers and was capable of rejoining the main body at any time. This Stewart failed to do. Taking his three best brigades, he allowed the northward slogging Union Army to separate him from the Army of Northern Virginia for a full week, depriving Lee of his cavalry eyes at a crucial time. That is why the first contact on July 1st at the site of the first shot marker occurred between Union cavalry and Confederate infantry advancing without the usual cavalry screen and scouts to determine the enemy's position and strength. Nevertheless, the hot days of late June seemed to signify the pinnacle of Confederate success. Ewell's Corps, in advance, had bowled over and captured most of a 4,000-man Union force blocking their way at Winchester, Virginia, and had crossed the Potomac into Maryland and Pennsylvania. One of Ewell's divisions penetrated to the Susquehanna River at Wrightsville, while two others occupied Carlisle and threatened Harrisburg and the Pennsylvania Railroad Bridge over the Susquehanna, the destruction of which was one of Lee's goals in the campaign. This initial success seemed to mark Ewell as a worthy successor to Jackson. While Ewell's divisions were threatening Harrisburg and Wrightsville on June 28th, Lee, with the rest of the army, was at Chambersburg, 25 miles northwest of Gettysburg. The campaign seemed a smashing success so far. The invaders stripped the countryside and towns of all the cattle, horses, shoes, and food they could find. All that remained was to find the Army of the Potomac and whip it. Despite the troubling absence of Stuart, which left him without accurate intelligence about the enemy's whereabouts, Lee exuded confidence. According to one of his subordinates, Lee said that when he located the Army of the Potomac, I shall throw an overwhelming force on their advance, crush it, follow up the success, drive one corps back on another, and by successive repulses and surprises create a panic and virtually destroy the army. Then the war will be over and we shall achieve the recognition of our independence. This turned out to be the pride that goeth before a fall. The Army of the Potomac was coming, with more speed and elan than Lee realized. That army had a new commander. When the Confederates entered Pennsylvania, Lincoln saw an opportunity as well as a threat. 
an opportunity to cut off and cripple the enemy far from his home base. The President told Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells that, We cannot help beating them if we have the man. But Lincoln became convinced that Hooker was not the man. The general had begun to fret that the enemy outnumbered him, that he needed reinforcements, that the government was not supporting him. To Lincoln, these complaints sounded as though Hooker was looking for an excuse not to fight. When the general submitted his resignation over a dispute about the Union garrison at Harper's Ferry, Lincoln accepted it on June 28th and promoted a surprised Major General George Gordon Meade to command. Meade was the fourth commander of the Army of the Potomac. His tactical skills, including the effective use of terrain and reserves, would play a large part in the coming battle. As the Army of the Potomac moved north to confront the invaders, its morale rose with the latitude. Civilians in western Maryland and southern Pennsylvania cheered them, in contrast to the hostile curses they were accustomed to hearing in Virginia. These soldiers had been toughened to a flinty self-reliance in earlier campaigns under bumbling leaders. They have something of the English bulldog in them, wrote a Massachusetts officer. You can whip them time and again, but the next fight they go into, they are as full of pluck as ever. Some day or other we shall have our turn. That day was coming soon. On the night of June 28th, a civilian spy employed by General Longstreet brought word to Lee and Longstreet in Chambersburg that the Army of the Potomac was concentrated just south of the Pennsylvania border and was moving north. Chagrined that he had not learned this information from Stuart, Lee was nevertheless convinced that he must act quickly, lest the enemy get between his divided forces. He sent couriers to recall Ewell's divisions from Wrightsville and Carlisle. Meanwhile, Major General Henry Heath's division of A.P. Hill's Corps marched at dawn toward Gettysburg on the Chambersburg Pike, where at 7.30 they encountered Lieutenant Marcellus Jones and his advance picket post. This confrontation introduces the first of many supposed myths about Gettysburg that continue to provoke arguments to this day. Generations of historians and battlefield guides have said that the advance brigade of Heath's division was heading to Gettysburg to find a rumored supply of shoes in town. Young people especially are captivated by the story that the Battle of Gettysburg started because of shoes. Recently, however, some historians have debunked this anecdote as a myth. There was no shoe factory or warehouse in Gettysburg, they point out. The 22 shoemakers listed in the 1860 census as living in Gettysburg were barely sufficient to make or repair the footwear worn by county residents. And if there had been a surplus of shoes in town, they would have been cleaned out by Brigadier.